Hello and welcome to the Dexaeus Midnight Runner edition of Romaniacs, the Large Hadron Collider of Brexit podcasts, where we send all the information about Britain's departure from the EU spinning around at fantastic speeds. I'm Dorian Linsky and I'm back from my holiday in France, where I somehow avoided the four-hour border hell that the Daily Mail claims the EU has imposed as an ironic punishment for Brexit. Maybe the passport gendarmes gave me special Romaniacs treatment. And joining me as usual is the editor of politics.co.uk, Ian Dunt, who has also been away. Oh, Ian, where did you go? Uh, I went to Italy. It was absolutely terrible, as you can imagine. It was lots of really lovely wine, very good meat, very lovely cheese and lots of sunshine. So I had a dreadful time. Good job of getting out of that Europe, isn't it? Yes, no, it's a very, yes. It's a bad time that we did that, really. I'd really prefer some more obstacles between me and that particular location. (laughs) The the only problem I made on holiday was occasionally checking my phone for some other purpose. Ah, you see, I refused to check it at all. So I switched off my internet and just basically wouldn't touch that thing except to take photos, which was a problem because that was how we were working out our little bits of expenditure. So my friends could have rather screwed me there. But nevertheless, (laughs) the best option was just not to have any contact. I literally... At one point, I was looking at my phone and grimacing, and my daughter said, what's up, Dad? Is it Brexit again? <laughs> which, which, which is a true story. And I, I just logged onto Twitter for some other benign reason and ended up having an argument with Labour Leave. Oh, no. Like a sort of red UKIP. <laughs> and I was like, why am I doing this? Why am I so cross? And then I just sort of made myself enjoy Europe and food and sunshine and stuff. Yeah. Like, partly, you don't want to fight because you don't want to bring up all of that sort of negative emotional stuff during a holiday. You want to de-stress. But also, because I'm running the website a lot of the time, if I see a news line, I can't help but start repackaging it in my head and thinking, like, where are the various avenues that can go? And then that work brain bit just gets switched back on. And I really, really need that work brain bit to be switched off when I'm on holiday. So basically, the phone just needs to go in the corner and just not be touched as much as possible. And also with us is Peter Collins, formerly business editor of The Economist, now the armchair Indiana Jones of Brexitography. How's your work brain, Peter? Uh, it's ticking along, it's just about, yes. It's on full blast. Um, uh, you did a splendid job of presenting the show last week with Naomi Smith. Uh, did we miss anything terrifying on our holidays? Well, there was one thing. Uh, this um, briefly employed White House Chief of Staff, Anthony Scaramucci, um, while he was briefly in his job, he made us all throw up all of our dinners forever uh, by searing indelibly into our brains the gruesome image of Steve Bannon committing what many newspapers delicately described as autofellatio, oh, very good. Uh, which sounds more like sucking off uh, Ford Mondeo's exhaust pipe. Uh, terrify, anyway. You'll be pleased to hear that news of the mooch travelled far and wide uh, across the European Union. And um, one of the highlights of my holiday is... His sort of breakneck tenure. Um, and we are very excited to welcome back to Romaniacs, Roz Taylor. She's the editor of DemocraticAudit.com and the managing editor of LSE Brexit Blogs, which is a fantastic deep dive into Brexit. Welcome back, Roz. How are you? I'm very well. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm just about to enjoy my holiday in the EU. As <laughs> While I still can. Which, While I which, still can. Which, we're ticking them all off. We've done France, we've done Italy. But then I'm going to be boring and say France again. Brittany. France again. Yeah. Right, so Peter, when you go on holiday to Europe, you're going to have to choose something more. The Falkland Islands, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Proper British destination. So, Russ, for listeners who don't know, can you explain what LSE Blogs is all about? Yeah, LSE Blogs is the whole series of blogs belonging to London School of Economics. And we have loads of them about things like religion in the public sphere and European politics and all kinds of stuff. But uh, the one I co-edit is the LSE Brexit blog, which we started uh, about 18 months ago now, nearly two years, not expecting it to last beyond beyond uh, 2016. And here we are, having just got another two years funding. So <laughs> swings and roundabouts, eh? <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's good news as well, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So what, what have you uncovered about Brexit since you started? 
started the blogs, have there been any kind of uh, exciting yeah, we, we've uh, done a lot on uh, particularly EU migrants because my co-editor is actually Polish, uh, Rochdin Vanzovic. There you go, he's got his name check there. And um, he is, uh, he's actually got permanent residency now, which he fought very hard to get earlier this year. But uh, he's Polish. So we've got a special interest in EU migrants in the UK. And we've looked in particular at some of the problems they have uh, with all the paperwork, with all the admin and all the uncertainty still, still over a year after we've voted to leave. Which he's about, about to go through again, right? Because his permanent yeah. residency will be stripped from him when they introduce the new system and he'll be forced to reapply yes. for the settled status or whatever. Yeah. So that 84-page form he had to fill out, I guess, was for absolutely no reason whatsoever. And he's going to become an expert in exactly what Broxy entails in your own personal life as well as his professional life. Yes, yes. I mean, it gave him a short-term feeling of brief respite and then it was all thrown into disarray again but that means that we uh, do a lot in particular on uh, EU migrants and we're doing a big he's coordinating a big uh, survey at the moment called Generation Brexit which is aimed at asking what under 30s under 35s uh, think about Brexit. Well, there's one particular uh, LSE blogs item we're going to be talking about later. Which regions will suffer most and least from Brexit? So hold tight. Find out whether it's the sunny uplands of sovereignty for you or a life of sprout picking for three shiny new British shillings per hour. <laughs> of course, we'll be rounding up the latest developments from Planet Brexit and we'll also be answering your Brexit questions in the first of what might be a regular feature, unless we make an utter David Davis of it, called Ask Romaniacs. <laughs> Before we get started, can we ask a favour? If you've been enjoying the show and you use an Apple device, then why not subscribe to Romaniacs via Apple Podcasts on your phone or iTunes on your computer? Every episode of Romaniacs will then materialise on your phone or other device of its own accord. And if you have a second, leave us a nice positive review on iTunes too. Subscriptions and reviews help us get noticed on Apple Podcasts and generally spread the word about Romaniacs. Android people, that includes people who are Androids as well as people who use it, do not despair. We're on Pocket Cast, Stitcher, Overcast and Spotify too. And now Acast as well. You can find links to all of those things at the mothership, Romaniacs.com. And before we start the news roundup, just a little note for your diaries. If things proceed in their current direction, Britain will leave the EU on 29th of March 2019. We're not giving in to the madder kind of Brexiteer and calling it Independence Day. And Brexit Day is far too depressing a name. So henceforth, we will refer to it as B-Day because it's going to give us a very strange and un-British feeling and a fundamental sense of unease. <laughs> Let's start the news with a remarkable YouGov poll into Brexit extremism from earlier this week. Among other things, it found that 61% of Leave voters would accept significant damage to the British economy as a price worth paying for Brexit. When they were asked would it be worth you or members of your family losing their jobs, 39% said it would still be worth it. I understand the 22% who think an economic disaster is okay as long as they personally don't suffer, more than the 39% who will sabotage their own kids for a blue passport. The polling also found that in both cases, general economic misery and misery for me and my family, the figures went up the older the Leave voters were. The New Statesman reported it as, this research on Brexit proves that baby boomers hate their own children. <laughs> but there was also some evidence of extremism on the Remain side. 34% of Remain voters would accept serious damage to the economy if it meant staying inside the EU. 38% wouldn't, and 18% of Remainers would accept losing their job or someone in their family losing their job in order to stay in the EU. Ian, what does this all mean? I mean, really horrible things. I can't even really, you know, the instinct is to think, well, to start reappraising how we think of like economic arguments and do you win the debate on that. I didn't really have any of that when I saw this stuff. I, I actually thought this was one of the most sort of shocking polls I'd seen in a really long time, and I was quite... I mean, not upset by it exactly, but just this idea that you basically got, I think, was it half the people, the believers over 65, I think, were basically saying that they'll be willing for someone that they knew for a friend or family member to lose their job over this stuff. And you just think, like, 
what what happened in your life that you just got to this point that you're actually going to tick that box and say you know i'm really i'm perfectly comfortable with like my brother losing his job as long as it gets me my crazed ideological you know outcome I, I found it quite troubling well the thing that people always used to say about racists not that all the voters are racists obviously heavens no few are um was that well but they love their family so they don't love anyone else, <laughs> but they, they love their grandkids and they want what's best for them. And it's if the Grey Twins argument, if that isn't means, it? Yeah, if that means <laughs> racism or knocking people off in the Grey Twins yeah. case, you know, well, so be it. But that was one thing you could say about them. And these guys, they're just like literally, no, I will take racism above my mm. grandkids' prospects. Oh, no, they is... know what they're actually saying. What they're actually saying is, I know what's good for you. And, you know, that's what older generations do. I've started doing it with my kids, you know. <laughs> I've made them do stuff they don't want to do because I know it's good for them. And sometimes I'm probably wrong. And the older I get, the more often I'm probably likely to be wrong. And that's where they're going. Can, I, mean, I, can I put in a counter-argument just, <laughs> that's, that's just for the sake, the sake of the debate? So I'm a Remainer who voted Remain not for economic reasons. I didn't believe any of the stuff on either side. I voted for the European project. No wars among European nations, cooperation on everything from safety regulation to conservation, a continent full of civil liberties, freedom to travel and work, all that sort of thing. I personally think I would sacrifice a few GD points, GDP points for this. And if, therefore, to be intellectually honest, I would say, yes, I suppose that, you know, if we sacrifice a couple of points of GDP in order to do this, uh, then people may lose their jobs. You know, people I know might, may lose their jobs. You'd be intellectually dishonest to say otherwise. And if you look at, right, if, just forgetting Brexit for a moment, if you look at all areas of economic policy, there's all sorts of things that chip off a few points of GDP. If businesses were completely free to rip off little old ladies and stuff like that, and we didn't care about civil rights and equality and all those sorts of things, the economy actually might well be more efficient and we might actually get those extra points of GDP. So so, you know, we don't just do things, thankfully, to, to maximise uh, GDP growth or, or however you measure this, the, the economy. And we don't even do things to maximise employment. So the thing that gets me, I suppose, is when you say GDP, yes, we know that that involves jobs somewhere. But what you can start doing is saying to yourself, well, it'll be this kind of job over there. It'll be the kind of job that I don't approve of. You know, it'll be a banker or something like that. When you start saying, I'm actually willing to see the people that I love lose their job, that's a really different thing. I mean, I, 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 it's really quite hard for me to think of many political virtues that I'd put above the people around me being able to make enough money and having a happy life. And that seems to suggest it's not so much sort of like a political issue, but just something fundamentally like emotional and psychological, like a switch going where your sense of priorities becomes hopelessly misplaced. So that, that's the bit that starts to trouble me. But I do also think, you know, you, you were right to point out that stuff with the Remainers. And I see quite a lot of this with, with Remainer people online as sort of almost almost like a wishing, and Peter, you've always been very good on sort of slapping this stuff down when it comes to, but almost like a wishing for the British economy to be bashed around a little bit in order for us to, you know, show that we were right. And there's always, again, another psychological, emotional moment of when you start slipping into tribalism to not allow yourself to prioritise being right over sort of the best interests of the country. Yeah, you've got to bear in mind this is people saying stuff and, you know, it's very different from actually getting there. And they want to defend their decision. You know, we, we all made a decision. We want to show it's the right one. We, we, yeah, I, I always wonder whether someone felt that it was almost like a trick question. It's just like, well, you think you were right, but what if your, like, daughter lost her job? And they're just thinking, you can't get me there. I don't care. I still don't care. I still don't regret it, you know. Yeah. Whereas if you literally had, like, their daughter sad in front of them, crying, Dad, why did you lose mm. me my job? Then it might be different. 
Maybe not. Maybe some of them are just psychopaths. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Let's move on to the, uh, the brief regency of Chancellor Philip Hammond, or as Matthew Paris dubbed him in his Britain as Banana Republic analogy, Don Felipe. Hammond has had the control column of government since Theresa May went on holiday to Switzerland a week ago. And while Theresa's away, the Hammond will play. He raised the idea of a transitional implementation phase on the single market for two years after Brexit, which is a red rag to the hard Brexit crew. That would take us up to the next scheduled general election in 2022. This has caused terrible confusion as to what the government's position really is, plus a change, with different ministers <laughs> floating different solutions. And Hammond's stand-in turn running the government has not gone down well with the Brexiteers. One unnamed cabinet colleague told The Guardian, he needs to put a sock in it, stop undermining the boss and get on with his day job. They said he was guilty of crazy behavior. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Colonel Bufton Tufton in The Telegraph wrote in, For more than a year, I have considered Philip Hammond a fifth columnist for Brussels. His treachery to the cabinet and the country over the last few days is the final straw. I would hope that Theresa May sees fit to show him the door. P.S. I would love a coup. <laughs> what was that his real name? Is that, that's, is that all made up? What's, <laughs> no, that's just like generic telegraph letter writer oh, name, isn't right, it? Yeah, Colonel Bufton Tufton. Probably. Apologies to any real Colonel Bufton Tufton who are keeping the nation safe. There's probably a whole office in the telegraph churning out this stuff, you realise. It may not actually be genuine. <laughs> using, using fridge magnets, treachery, fifth columnist, Brussels paymasters. Ian, how is Don Felipe's tenure going? Um... It's hard to tell, really. He's clearly positioned himself as the guy that's going to be reasonable about all of this stuff. His positions are still not particularly moderate. I mean, he's still talking about being outside of the customs union, outside of the single market, but on a more realistic timescale. Although it's important to note that his timescale is dictated entirely by the British electoral cycle. That's why he's talking about this two, three-year thing. Not because that's what business says, not because that's how long these kind of negotiations usually take. So even, you know, the fact that we've got to a stage where he is considered the sane one, just because he looks, you know, like a sort of ragged pair of curtains, doesn't really change anything. I mean, he is still putting forward a quite, quite mad point of view, just slightly less mad than the people around him. Downing Street then come out... They basically said transition's fine. Remember, Theresa May used to rebrand it as the implementation phase, although, you know, casually forgetting stuff that nothing would have been agreed by then, so there's nothing to implement. So they're going to accept a transition, but they won't accept what he's talking about, which is an out-the-box transition, off-the-shelf transition, which would suggest uh, some sort of EEA membership. He's doing his best, really. But the thing is, there is no authority anywhere. So it doesn't really matter what anyone around the cabinet table says, because there's no there's no there's no real prime minister except for this cardboard box that we've got who's now walking in Switzerland. So (laughs) you don't really know what's really going to happen. It's just people fighting one another and struggling for control. So you can hear this stuff and you think, well, fine, that's of, of passing interest. But it doesn't really tell you anything about our future direction of travel. There's, there's also an element of making making the most of where the situation they're stuck in. So the other interesting thing, very important thing, I think, that Hammond said in the past few days uh, was basically giving this interview to a French newspaper saying, look, we are not going to become this low-tax regulation uh, country. He didn't use the phrase Singapore on Thames, but that's the one that's been used. And he said, you know, after, after Brexit, Britain will still be recognisably European. Now, he said that exactly the opposite at the beginning of the year to a German newspaper that... We could, we could do all this, you know. He does we, keep we, talking to the yeah, Europeans, doesn't ex- he? Exactly. Suspicious. But, but there's two things. One is <laughs> one is that, obviously, a Singapore on Thames option with spend, further spending cuts, further tax cuts, uh, deregulation, wouldn't get through Parliament now because they don't have the majority. It would be, you know, impossible to do. So 
that's just basically um, facing up to reality. So while he's doing that, he may as well make the most of it by positioning it as an overture to the EU side to say into a French newspaper so that gets read in Paris and Brussels and so on look you know we're not going to do that we're, we're good Europeans still when you know we're going to be quite reasonable in these negotiations even though it's driven essentially by the fact that they can't actually do that at the moment. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, that is interesting that he's at least making those overtures. And you see him positioning himself with the Europeans as, look, I've been the reasonable one, you know, if, if by any chance he might be able to get to take over sometime in the future, which I don't think is outside of the realm's possibility. If I had to put money on someone to replacing me, I'd probably go with him in terms of it would suggest a change of the winds. The winds would probably be blowing in that direction. And he's still ultimately this sort of, you know, quite tedious figure that can often at moments of sort of volatile political change be quite a good quality for someone to have. John Major, anyone? Well, exactly, yeah, 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 and that worked out terribly well. Well, hang on a he second. did last for seven years. Everybody wanted John Major because they want they wanted somebody who was more consensual and collegial. I thought he was good, actually. I voted for him. I think it was great. It, of course, it was it was a parliament full of cock-ups, but that was the uh, Eurosceptics to blame, in my view. Anyway. We're getting a bit off topic. You could sort of say that he created that by, by you know, going for the whole, like, you know, family values sort of attitude. And I that can't was help myself for going go a little bit off topic. But I, I'm actually quite fond of John Major, back, so you're right. I back in those days, we used to care it. about Cohn's hotlines. Do you remember? That was, that was what politics was like. That <laughs> in what days? Yeah. I think the important thing is that John Major was terrible. Yeah. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> now, the music community has finally responded to the threat of Brexit. Who is speaking for the young people whose futures have been thrown into disarray? Is it the angry youth with their fierce opposition to neoliberalism? No, it's 74-year-old squillionaire Sir Mick Jagger with his new double A-side single Gotta Get a Grip and England Lost. Let's hear a bit of it. Now, we know things are bad when Mick has to write a protest song. In 1968, he wrote Street Fighting Man, a song about why he wasn't actually a street fighting man. In 1983, Under Cover of the Night was perhaps the only good thing to come out of Reagan supporting fascist hunters in Central America. Four years ago, there was doom and gloom, which attacked the Iraq war for being a waste of money. Now Brexit has turned the butterfly on a wheel into an enemy of the people and forced him to sound like Black Grape fronted by a Mick Jagger impersonator from the news quiz. What do we think? Steaming pile of festering turds is my is my considered view. I don't really work with political music, to be honest. Um, whether I agree with it or don't, and I usually do because typically speaking, political music's on the left, and you know, and this sort of stuff. But I just always find it so sort of painful to listen to. Even you know, you take Billy Bragg or something, this classic stuff, where the lyrics of the political songs are actually very good and very well thought through. I still really quite dislike them and find them a bit sort of finger wagging. And then when he does the romance songs or just songs about life in general, I find his lyrics really genuinely quite beautiful and, and sort of sensitive and well thought through. I struggle outside of sort of Public Enemy and Rage Against the Machine, the sort of classic bands that, that will just do that stuff, to really think of any political songs I like. So I don't think I'm the person to ask this question of. Yeah, it's always tough for an old rich bloke to pontificate on politics, isn't it? I mean, you know, we, we trust uh, pop in politics when it comes out of the grassroots. Uh, it's more, much more difficult when it comes from someone who is, you know, very rich, very secure, big stadium rock. You know, it's, it's not a man. He's no longer a man of people. That's the problem. Um, 
this well, has been some I mean, of the most non-committal music criticism. Well, yeah. <laughs> well as someone who wrote, actually wrote a book about protest songs, I do like <laughs> an awful lot of them. Damn, and sorry. I don't think there's any reason why... I think it does come down to the song, not necessarily even the, the person, that you, you could do it well. And there are lines in here that I, I quite like, and lines in here which I very much don't. And what, what's weird is that actually mixed bits are better than Skepta's. Because Skepta sort of rots up and he does this kind of real generic kind of protest. Ain't, sort of ain't nothing changed. It's all the same. People in streets, people in suits. And it's like, well, things are changed. It's quite a big change, actually. <laughs> like, if you're going to criticise Brexit, you, you can't do the kind of same old, same old kind of line. It just seems like very boilerplate. Whereas, you know, Mick's, Mick's playing... I don't say I don't keep calling him Mick like he's my mate. Sir Mick Jagger. Um, <laughs> you know, he's got a, he's got a football analogy... He's got a bit about how it's putting a cramp in his womanizing because he, he got a girl in Lisbon, a girl in Rome. Now I've got to stay at home. So that's sad for them. That's um, a pretty good argument for Brexit. Though, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think that actually they... So uh, leave those poor women alone. <laughs> <laughs> they're going to be looking forward to some tighter border controls. <laughs> but I liked the... Uh, I liked the the fact that he was sort of making an effort because it's still quite early days, you know, that... that um, obviously, you can write protests on very, very quickly, but a lot of the time it takes a while to filter through. People take a while to make an album. So you're seeing facets of it in so, Gorillaz, Maximo Park. It, it's sort of coming out. But for him to just sort of go straight out, like, I'm going to write a kind of a very old-fashioned, in, not in its sound, well, kind of, but, you know, in it, its kind of conception, this protest song about how I don't like what's going on. And then listing some stuff. He does this bit where he's just obviously kind of listing like tr Twitter trending topics. Where he goes, oh, fake news. What's that about? Fake news. I've just been handed a note by our producer, Andrew, who says, are you mixplaining? I am. I'm, I feel like I need to defend him a little. Like some, sometimes there is a category of protest song where you just think, I'm glad that you bothered to make this. I don't want to hear it ever again. But that sort of impulse... I find sort of winningly eccentric from a man that does not need to do this. Is this? I mean, I'm in danger of going into music criticism here, which is not an area that I'm going to be particularly strong on. But like, it just sort of seems to me that back when I was sort of growing up, you know, sort of in the late 90s and, and the early noughties, that ultimately most of the interesting things were happening in the indie scene and pop was pretty terrible. And now it seems that the indie scene is largely dead and pop is really quite interesting and all the people that have got stuff to say and interesting things to do musically seem to be going into there. That's obviously an industry that would be much more resistant towards coming out with political messages. And could it be that this sort of silence that we hear from music communities to do with that? I don't... Just to, sort of, you know, to wrap things up, I don't think that there's silence. Like on Brexit Day, you know, I saw bands at Glastonbury a diverse range of people at Glastonbury, like the 1975 Bastille, the churches, making a very passionate statement. Now, whether you can turn that into a song, I think is the difficult thing. But Bas the guy from Bastille has been talking about this loads. You can, if you open a music magazine now, Brexit and Trump are going to be in there. But can you write a good song about it? Mick Jagger suggests at the moment, no. So, you know, it's, it's a challenge, but I don't think it's that they don't care. Now, Ian, this is a story you were especially keen to talk about. Romaniac's favourite and walking, talking Churchill insurance dog, David Davis, has recruited a new chief of staff, a chap called Stuart Jackson. This is the MP who called the Tory manifesto electoral poison after losing his seat in Peterborough at the election. So he's not a fan of Theresa May. But hang on, he also called a constituent a thick chav on Facebook when upset about losing his seat. So, Ian, who is this man? What does he want? He's an odd one. He's interesting. Uh... 
he, I mean, there's the 12 month period after the referendum before the election. We're obviously on Twitter, you know, pretty much every day. I'm just getting a barrage of abuse by, by sort of Brexit people, really quite lowly stuff. And it took me ages to realize that he actually had the position that he had because he was one of them. And it was just the most bog standard, suck it up, whiner, you whining, remaining. It was really the lowest sort of rung of the sort of Brexit abuse ladder. And he was actually literally one of them. And it was like, oh, my God, you're actually you're actually part of the machinery. You're not just an MP. You're, you're properly in the department. He, then, I mean, he sent me actually halfway through the election. He sort of sent me a tweet where he was just like, it's going to be very hard for you crying into your cereal on the day that we win the election, isn't it? Which was, of course, a particularly <laughs> wonderful moment for me when he then lost his seat. On the <laughs> did, you, uh, did you send him a little message back? Uh, well, I tried to, but at that point he promptly blocked me on Twitter. So there was, there was no opportunity to do that. You lost um, get over it. Yeah, well, exactly. Yes, yes. Um, so there is something to learn, though, by the fact that he's in there now. He loses the job voted out by his constituents, and is now brought in by David Davis as his chief of staff. Now, that tells us a few things. First of all, it tells us, has there been any sort of reassessment of how they're going about this and what they're trying to do? Quite evidently not, if this is the kind of guy they're bringing in. But also, remember, he's supposed to be the go-between between between Davis and the civil service. So the guys that are supposed to be coming up with obstacles that we need to correct, different ways of addressing these problems, are being faced with this guy, who's not even just a true believer, but is also an incredibly sort of angry, you know, emotionally broken true believer. That, again sums into all this sort of stuff that we see again and again from Davis. Those trade groups that used to go see him in the early days would come out and say, look, we're being told by civil servants before we go in, raise all the opportunities that are available by Brexit, downplay the problems, or else he's just going to ask you to leave after five minutes. And now we see him again surrounding himself by these very aggressive walls between himself and reality. And of course, we've now seen how that translates when he gets into Brussels. He doesn't have anything to say. He can't even sit at those meetings and instantly capitulates to what he's asked to do. So if it shows anything, it means that really nothing has changed in the actual guts of how Brexit operates. And we should ready ourselves for more of the exact same problems that we've seen so far. Yeah, I mean, it's also about Davis's leadership ambitions. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure that he is lining himself up to do uh, some, let's say, um, rousing stuff ahead of the Conservative Party conference because we know how weak Theresa May is. She could go at any time. Um, I don't uh, think uh, I, I don't think that Davis would at all object to becoming PM and being crowned PM, which undoubtedly, from the point of view of many in the uh, current uh, Conservative Party in the in Parliament, they'd be fairly happy with with that. On the other hand, there are many people who seriously dislike him. He's a serial plotter, and I mean, you know, I remember going to Conservative Party conference in the, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And and you would see Davis and he would always be surrounded at Conservative Party conferences by this circle of admiring blokes. Um, it's it's very much, you know, and I'm, and, and, and there's no, under, it's just completely straightforward. You know, he's, he's, he's a happily married man. It's just that he attracts a certain amount of hero worship among a certain amount of Conservatives. And uh, I think that rehabilitating um, Stuart, Stuart Jackson and, you know, when he's sadly lost his seat and bringing him back into politics, which I'm sure he's going to be very happy about, um, is uh, is is uh, because he's an ally is part of this getting ready to uh, challenge Theresa May if necessary and surrounding himself with, as you say, a shield of uh, uh, of, of, of supporters. And that's what that's what it's really about. And I also think it's a bit of a kind of Trump move in a way because he wants to make sure there isn't too much leaking from uh, DXEU. He wants to shore up, uh, make sure the civil service behave themselves. This guy is going to be a bit of an enforcer. 
Could there also be an element of, of Trumpism that, you know, Trump is having great difficulty filling all these posts, vacancies he keeps creating and the ones he didn't fill in the first place. And you'd have to be a hardline headbanging supporter to want to take it. Isn't, isn't there an element of that that, you know, you wouldn't get Gavin Barwell, say, who became Theresa May's chief of staff, a, a Remainer, um, wanting to take the job, would you? I don't know. I mean, th- at the beginning, I think that there was a lot of that immediately after the referendum. And you saw it with when uh, actually Davis's department tried to bring people in, because unlike Liam Fox's one, which is sort of Frankenstein's monster, stitched together bits of the civil service, you know, the, the actual Brexit department was made out of nothing. And at the beginning, you had people that didn't want to be associated with it, weren't emotionally engaged, weren't intellectually engaged. But then later on, you sort of had that sense of, well, this is where the action is. This is the main thing. If you care about your country, if you care about how things are going to progress, this is the topic that you take a lead on. And I would have thought there were people who'd be uncomfortable with all of the social, emotional and political requirements of it that would still want the job because it's such a crucial role right now. The fact that he chose this guy, you know, I just think speaks volumes as to where we're going. Well, we'll be adding Stuart's face to the uh, the wall of mugshots. Romania's <laughs> HQ. <laughs> Okay, you heard her earlier on. It's the marvellous Ros Taylor of LSE Brexit Blogs. And there's an especially interesting piece here this week, headlined, Which British Regions Will Suffer Most and Least from Brexit? by Henry G. Overman. It's based on a survey by the LSE's Centre for Economic Performance, working with the Centre for Cities Think Tank. In some respects, this is the big issue of Brexit. Which areas are the winners and losers? Unless we're all losers. And it's the guilty thought of all Remainers. When are all those people who voted to leave going to get their comeuppance? But it is an unworthy thought because, of course, we want all parts of the country to prosper. Roz, tell us about this story. Yeah, it's an interesting one, this, because uh, I'm afraid, you know, everyone does suffer. There's no upside, really, uh, in terms of regions. But this is all based on um, looking at the impact on different industries that Brexit will have uh, on a soft Brexit and on a hard Brexit, uh, hard Brexit and a soft Brexit. So some industries uh, under this model do really well uh, post-Brexit. And uh, fish, for example, um, agriculture, wood, paper, places that uh, do that kind of thing will get off relatively lightly. On the other hand, if you work in uh, financial services, if you work in mining, if you're involved in making electronic uh, equipment, if you make chemicals, those are going to be worst affected. So that's what this is all based on. And what it shows is that uh, the area worst affected is the City of London. You probably guess that. It's always been an outlier. After that, it's Aberdeen, then Tower Hamlets, Watford, places like Islington, uh, Jeremy Corbyn's constituency, as it happens, that will be very hard hit by, uh, by Brexit. A lot of places in the south because they depend on industries which are very very tapped into Europe essentially on the other hand the places that won't be so much offended uh, won't be so much affected rather um, are places like South Holland which is uh, in around the wash around Lincolnshire North Lincolnshire Moray Crawley the Isles of Scilly uh, is, is going to get off relatively lightly and uh, Hounslow because it's next to uh, Heathrow which should should still be okay. So the interesting thing there is that what you're seeing, and this is going to be a disappointment to Remainers who want to see um, leavers suffer a bit, is that in the short term, it's going to be the uh, leave voting areas, some of them, that do relatively well. I mean, not, not well, but less badly. That's probably better. So what happened to that? Because there was, a, there was a, uh, an argument... Um, that I was very persuaded by the various reasons that farmers who had voted for Brexit were going to kind of, you know, kind of shot themselves in the foot because there were all these sort of subsidies they were going to lose. I've, I think this is he's to blame. Um, so is this not the case when you talk about so the farmers and the fishermen who voted leave were they 
were they right? This is the short term. And you've got to remember that all the subsidies are still in place in the short term because the government has promised them up to uh, 2020, I think 2022 in some cases. And so we're talking about the short term. Now, what the authors of this study, uh, the LSE, make clear is that this is only the short term. In the long term, there will be a, there will be changes, there will be restructuring. The uh, other thing to bear in mind is that they think that people affected in remain areas like Islington and Tower Hamlets and so on, because they're more mobile, because they're more flexible, and because they tend to earn more, and the City of London especially, will be able to bounce back and they will be able to recover better. They're in a better position to start with. People in these poorer remain voting areas have... Uh, they have less ability to uh, move around. They have less choice, fewer skills. They they aren't going to be able to necessarily uh, move out of a difficult situation as quickly. And in that, that the people who wrote the study, being proper ap- academics, proper experts, who we like. Uh, go out of their way to say, look, this is just a study, as you say, of the first order trade effects. Uh, you know, if we suddenly get trade barriers, tariff barriers, non-tariff barriers, uh, uh, either hard or soft, this is what could happen. And they acknowledge that, you know, it's not it's not a dynamic thing. They don't look at what happens when companies adjust. Of course, they don't look at what happens uh, as a result of the pound falling. You know, the pound is weak at the moment, particularly against the euro. The uh, the European economy is uh, improving and so on. And also, we will eventually do have to do some trade deals, these wonderful trade deals with uh, big emerging markets with the United States and so on. These are all, as far as I can see, very large agricultural exporters. So those farmers shouldn't be getting too relaxed about the short term effects that are described here, because all the long term stuff sounds quite bad. I mean, certainly long term, it's hard to see how agriculture survives in any capacity outside of really sort of poultry farming and maybe cereals, I would say. But even in the short term, I'm surprised it's okay because, of course, the tariffs on agricultural goods are shockingly high. So if those if those barriers suddenly come up, you face a, a pretty tough time, even with subsidies. And it's quite troubling that if that's on the lower end of the spectrum of the effects, just how severe it is on the other side. I always thought the city would broadly be okay. I mean, I remember when I was writing the book, it was just like, if anything, it will bleed out. It's not going to have a heart attack, but you're going to lose sort of 10% capacity at the start. But these guys have loads of money. So, you know, in the long term, Mm. the one thing they can do is just sort of work their way around these various ways just to make sure that they stay at the position that they are. And, of course, the city is rather protected by the fact that there really are no other centres in Europe that can take on the full capacity in terms of even housing or schooling of the kind of workers that you'd need in order to run it. So it always feels like they have an insurance policy there that, you know, agriculture most certainly does not. I mean, it has no insurance policy at all. And before we all uh, rush to the eyes of silly... um, it's, it, everyone has a minus, right? There's nobody who's actually, there's no area that's actually getting better off in the short term. Fishing must be a plus, no? When they it's better. a plus, but uh, it's not enough of a plus to, uh, and actually there's relatively few people employed in fishing, you've got to remember. I think it's about 30,000 in the UK, not a lot, uh, in what they call the fish and seafood industry index EU. <laughs> um, and so overall, and they don't, you know, they don't tend to earn a lot either, uh, sadly. So um, that's, uh, that's really why it doesn't have that big an impact overall even in the Isles of Scilly, and that's one of the reasons why the Isles of Scilly does relatively well. Mm. Plus, you know, we will be staycationing. <laughs> Lawyers, accountants, journalists, all the, they all, all do all okay. The, people yeah. with FTSE 100 shares. I mean, these are basically, those are the all some the, reason. The most popular people in Britain. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, you forgot the estate agents. You yeah. forgot the estate agents. <laughs> they really knocked the establishment on its ass here. I think they've done terribly well. Yeah, just add just add serial killers, and it's like a full house, isn't it? <laughs> Britain's favourite people. 
OK, shall we have a quick commercial break? Politics is all well and good, but sometimes you need a change of pace. If you like music, films, books and TV, may we recommend you try our sibling podcast, as I always insist on calling it, Big Mouth, the smart pop culture talk show. Every week, Big Mouth brings together the best music, film and TV journalists in Britain to talk about what's coming out and what matters, including our very own Dorian Linsky every now and again. Uh, so that's another reason to tune in. If you're looking for something to put on your phone for your holidays... Be sarcastic. Uh, no, I wasn't being sarcastic at all. No, if you're, if you're looking for something to put on your phone for your holidays, recent episodes have covered everything from Game of Thrones and Spider-Man Homecoming to Father John Misty, Radiohead and The Handmaid's Tale. You can find every episode of Big Mouth at audioboom.com slash channel slash Big Mouth. It'll make you forget Liam Fox and David Davis, especially that sex scene, for a whole 45 minutes at a time. <laughs> Okay, last week we announced an exciting and possibly unwise experiment, Ask Romaniacs, where you, the listener, get to put your questions to our panel. We're not quite set up for a phone-in yet, so we asked listeners to tweet us with the hashtag AskRomaniacs, and we're going to try a few now. Ian, here's one for you. Totoro, of my neighbour Totoro fame, says, This government has a hope of hell of doing Brexit to time and budget. Was there a past government who could have done it, or even got close? No. The key there is time. I mean... Any government could do it given enough time. I mean, anyone could do anything given enough time. But if you had a realistic time scale and decent negotiating capacity, this is doable. It's not intrinsic to Brexit that the whole thing has to be catastrophic. It's working to an unrealistic time scale without enough negotiating capacity. There would have been many previous governments that would not have got into the position where they would be approaching a problem in an unrealistic time scale without enough negotiating capacity. And I'd say that would go for almost any government that's taken place until now. No matter how much you may have disliked it, there was always a sense of responsibility that came from those roles. It meant they just wouldn't have gotten into this mess. But in all of these cases, you know, the extent of it, you know, when we talk about things like your atom and all that, when we look at all these various bits of society that are affected by it, you see that the breadth and the depth of the problem, you can't do that in any less than seven years after having really bulked up the people that you have in order to take it on. Of course, the real danger is when you just get civil servants and throw some trailer at them and go scrub up on this, they're going to get eaten alive in those rooms. That's why you don't send them in there until you've got seasoned veterans of trade disputes. You can go in there and hold their own against these people, really specialist areas. So the answer is absolutely not. But all of those governments would have probably done more to make sure that they could. Roz, how about this one? Manu from Belgium asks, was there an inevitability to Brexit, given long-standing tensions in British politics? Not a question of if, but when. No. No, there wasn't at all. So um, that's that, Manny from Belgium. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want me to go? I didn't yeah, no, please. Okay, no, that's fine. Um, yeah, I is Brexit was well. Brexit happened because there was a referendum. There never needed to be a referendum. Well, there was a referendum because David Cameron was very worried that his MPs would quit and join UKIP. Uh, if you remember, two of his MPs joined, uh, left, and uh, joined UKIP. And uh, are they there now? Well, no, they're not. Um, it's. He basically, like so many Tory leaders, uh, was felled by uh, the Europe problem. But he mishandled it and he caved in much too quickly. And basically, it was, it was a, uh, as soon as the Brexiteers started feeling they'd got something, you know, they'd, they'd, they'd got uh, the uh, renegotiation, they got promised a referendum. They just went for more and more and more. And they kept pushing it so that Euroscepticism became more and more mainstream. And by the time of the referendum campaign, it was sufficiently mainstream to get 
uh, the hearing that it needed from the media. And that was how Brexit happened. Uh, you know, Euroscepticism used to be uh, a, a very, very small pastime uh, enjoyed by a very, very few people, often in a very private way. And um, <laughs> among, among and fellow... And good luck to them. And yeah. good luck to them. And uh, it, it went mainstream, but it didn't have to. It, ha- it went mainstream because of a series of bad choices on the part of David Cameron. And it also happened because of uh, Boris Johnson and his decision. And Boris could have gone either way. You know, when he was deciding whether to back Brexit or not... Um, Tim Shipman's recent book on Brexit is very good on this. He basically didn't think about what Brexit itself. That wasn't what was motivating him. He sat down, he had big talks with Michael Gove about whether it was best to stay with Cameron or break free. And he decided that he was going to go with the Gove wing and he was going to uh, going to cut himself off from Cameron and take that risk. That was what his choice to back Brexit was based on. And so that was, again, Boris's invention, got uh, meant Euroscepticism, Brexit went mainstream. So no, it was never Because when we talk about long-standing tensions, obviously there are lots of long-standing tensions that were brought to a head with this, mm-hmm. but they didn't have to come to a head with a referendum on Europe, I think, yeah. a lot because so many reasons people were voting to leave was not specifically about Europe. It was about immigration, it was about globalisation, it was about, you know, economic hardship in particular areas of the country. It was, you know, a lot of emotional and psychological stuff. Uh, and the idea that this could only have culminated in a referendum on the EU. Yeah. Like, I don't buy. Those things would still exist, but they would manifest in other ways. They would, and give people politics. give people a referendum and give people a vote. They don't get a vote that often, even now, and they will vote against uh, the mainstream and the government if they're fed up with the mainstream and the government, and that's what happened. Yeah, because the referendum, but the question might as well have been, are you happy with how everything's going, or would you like yeah. to change? Yeah. You know, and and it's simple yes-no as well, which made yeah. it, yeah, yeah. Um, this is one for, for everyone. Roland Dunn asks, with only 18 months until the end of Article 50 and no sign of a deal, when might you start stockpiling baked beans, cash, petrol? I like his priorities there. Beans first. <laughs> sort out the beans. I think it's also what should we be stockpiling. I'd say French beans and euros because they're going to go <laughs> up in value, basically. Yeah. Definitely not baked beans. I can't stand baked beans. Actually, for my kids, well, no, I wouldn't bake because they're they're produced in Britain. You know, the uh, biggest centre for baked bean production is um, up in... Um, uh, it's up in the north, isn't it? It's between Liverpool and Manchester. Big, big baked bean production up there. So we're going to be fine for baked beans. Don't worry about baked beans. <laughs> I think that was the nub of his question, was, was the beans. I mean, should, should we start stockpiling uh, anything? When do we feel that these, these kind of... Um the economic effects are really going to bite. Well, Theresa May herself is stockpiling one thing, which is holidays in Europe. She's just gone there while she still can. And as the airlines keep pointing out, we really do have to reach a deal on Brexit Day unless there is a, a, a transition that includes staying in the European aviation area and being subject to the ECJ. So that's one thing you can stockpile and get your holidays in now. And, but the exchange rate is pretty ugly already. And it's grotesque. It's, like no promise of yeah, no, it's, like yeah. it's like a pound to a euro. Yeah, yeah it's, it's properly horrible weather. I mean, apart from all the lovely ham and cheese and wine, of course, but nevertheless, it all costs more. Um, there's different parts of the economy that get to a problem stage at different stages, right? So like in aviation, it's basically a year before. That's when they start sorting the stuff out. And that's why you're already starting to hear those noises around aviation. For other parts of the economy, it'll be slightly different. But there is that, when you talk to business guys, you really get that sense of, they just didn't really believe it was really happening before. I think really before the election, they was like, someone's going to step in and stop all of this, this crazy stuff they're talking about. And then there was a real realisation of actually, you know what, no one's actually in charge here. No one's taking any charge, not around the cabinet table, not in parliament, not in the Labour Party, 
certainly not in the Brexit department. And so I think now those guys are starting to prepare for the worst. And that'll really be that sort of six months leading up to it. The trouble is, by that stage, we're into the votes section. You know, according to Europe, there'll be no more talks once we're into those last six months of the negotiation. So really, it's very, very hard to tell. And of course, all of that takes place with the backdrop of how is sterling performing? What is inflation like? I mean, inflation figures are actually slightly improved last time. So that, that could offer a little bit of breathing space in how this goes. But that will set the context by which each industry, as it comes into its crunch timetables ahead of that deadline, start to feel the brunt of it. Peter, can you be clever? I mean, is this going to be possible? This is just a, off the wall. What if I bought loads of a currency that the pound is still relatively strong against, and then I kept that, and then I bought euros with that later? Is that a strategy I should... Is that what I should adopt? Well, there's m- many ruined financiers and even local councils who've I tried doing so. stuff like that, yeah. you know, that yeah. um, basically you have to be sure that the market will move in the direction uh, you think it will. And one thing, if, if, if there's one market, it's currencies that is totally unpredictable. You might ask Norman Lamont about that at, at some point. <laughs> Okay, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll hedge my limited bets. Yeah. It's, back, it's back to lottery tickets for you. <laughs> Peter, here's one for you. Andrew Brown asks, which sectors will profit from Brexit? He suggests lawyers, immigration and emigration, consultants, people smugglers. Who else? Well, podcasters, of course, <laughs> and uh, people who run uh, blogs about uh, Brexit. I mean, it's great to hear that the LSE is going to be financing the LSE Brexit blog for another couple of years. Um, so the punditry industry is going to do well. If it's a very messy Brexit, and there's no flights to and from Europe. I'd try to buy shares in Butlins, except that it's not quoted. But there is, you know, the people who own Madame Tussauds and so on. There'll be there'll be some domestic, very domestically focused businesses that have uh, that that face competition from Europe. In in the case of these, it's European holidays uh, that will do well. But it's very very hard to to predict because as as we found it when discussing that. Uh, paper on uh, who's going to be winners and uh, relative winners and losers for, from Brexit. It really depends on the second order and third order and fourth order effects. What happens to the pound? What happens uh, behind that to interest rates co- compared with the interest rates in the euro area and the dollar area and so on? Very difficult to know. And then we, we will do those trade deals and to, in order to get the trade deals with Brazil and the United States and India and so on, we will have to make concessions. Those concessions will be to let their very competitive industries in a particular area get into Britain um, and that therefore may well those companies that thought they'd got the European competition off their back will have the Brazilian, the Indian, the American and the Indonesian competition on their back. But if the people who do well, I mean presumably the tourist industry, the domestic tourist industry with a weak pound, we've already seen that, right? They get the benefit, they get European tourists from elsewhere around the world coming in and you've got more people staying at home uh, camping in the rain as I've seen our regular producer Matt is doing today. Um, so yep. presumably that, that's, they're, they're, they're winners. That's, that they should be, cer- certainly provided you know, the economy doesn't go so bad that incomes you know, uh, sub- uh, suffer uh, and therefore you, know, you, you don't get the domestic market going on. If you think about it, people don't go on one holiday these days. They go on, especially if you've got children, you've got, you, know, you've got, you go on several uh, short trips every time there's a school holiday and therefore... If they haven't got the money to go to Alton Towers or Madame Tussauds or whatever, even with a few more foreign tourists, which tend to concentrate in London, uh, you might not do better. Ali Quack says, besides the tweeting we're doing in our little bubbles, is there anything positive we can do to bring about a Remain reality? I've got an answer for this. The Queen, 
uh, wore that hat in the shape of the EU flag when she opened Parliament. Uh, in the proms the other day at the Albert Royal Albert Hall, when they were playing the last mo movement of Beethoven's Ninth, uh, alias the Ode to Joy, alias the EU anthem, there were people waving EU flags. The point is that, you know, we can keep reminding ourselves, as much as uh, the Brexiteers, that we're 40, 48% and rising. We are here. Europe is still here. We, are, we still want to be part of it. Just yep. to sort of not let the narrative um, settle that it's all fixed now. It's all closed. Well, this is the thing, because you think, what is the main narrative that you're hearing again and again and again from Brexiters? Which is just like, stop moaning, shut up, accept it. It's democracy. Move on. And you think, if that's the thing you're constantly being told, that's the thing you should not do. And you know, when people talk about a little bubble, it's like I don't, I don't think it's that little a bubble. Forty-eight percent of readers. It's not like it's not that tiny. So I mean, if you look at the British Social Attitude Survey findings recently about showing the way that Remainers really did seem to dictate the way that that election went by throwing their lot in with Labour, which may or may not have been a sensible move, but you can see why people reached that conclusion. The bubble was not that small, but also isn't the problem with that question in the question, which is you've got to get out of that bubble. You've really just got to do it. And it doesn't matter whether you've got five followers on Twitter or whether you're just talking to Facebook or whether you're doing it at work. We have this thing of resisting getting into those discussions. There is a way of doing that while being polite and being decent and not getting too irate. And I know it can be difficult to like to not allow your emotions to be carried away and to not feel like, you know, you're being pulverized all the time. But if someone is out there making actual arguments, not being abusive and not going to that really safe, sarcastic space where nothing really matters and, and all of that kind of stuff. If they're out there making arguments, make the argument back and keep on holding people to account on this stuff, on the details of what they're saying, on the logic of what they're saying. So when we stop doing that and we start talking to ourselves that we're in trouble, I'm aware of the name of this podcast and the room that we're sitting in and our entire editorial proposition doesn't necessarily match up to that. But, that is, you know, this <laughs> but is I'm sure that many of our listeners are Leave voters sitting there thinking, going, oh, make you think. Undoubtedly. <laughs> I'm sure we have a huge Leave contingent. But, you know, part of when we set up this podcast was about giving us a place to sort of recharge and to feel like you're not going completely mad. So you think, well, actually, I'm not the only person that is thinking this stuff. It, this, it doesn't mean you stay in that kind of bubble all the time. It means that that's where you go to, you know, to give yourself a hug and then go back out. Well, there's kind of an analogy with protest songs where a lot of the critique of protest songs is like, well, aren't you just preaching to the converted? You're not going to change anyone's mind, etc., etc." Largely, that may be true, but their enormous value is a sense of kind of solidarity and strength and sort of shared conviction among those who do, who, among those who do agree. And it's not always about, I think there's a great kind of myth that, that all sort of political activity and discussion is always about changing the minds of the other side. And I think particularly in such a polarised debate, obviously you would love to do that, but it's not the only game in town. There's an analogy with a particular social movement. It's to, to be out and to be, to be proud and to make it clear that there are more of us than you think. Yeah, and, and the great thing is as well that it's not a great thing, but whether you're a natural Tory supporter or a natural Labour supporter or whether you're something else, it's kind of gone beyond party politics now if you're a Remainer because, let's face it, the Lib Dems are not in a strong position. So you don't have to sort of follow the party line and you don't have to be involved in party politics to be involved in talking about Brexit. It's kind of transcended that and it's go gone beyond it. And that's actually quite liberating. As someone who's always, you know, never never wanted to be never wanted to be put into a party box and has always resisted that. Um I find it quite liberating to be able to have a subject which transcends these boundaries. Um Yeah, that's interesting. Well you can really feel it rubbing up can't you like i mean when you look at the, the people who have real convictions for remain and those who have real convictions for jeremy corbyn mm. you can almost see them 
just starting to just fall apart out there. As they, well, yeah, the, which of these things are they going to be? Able you can to... see that some of the some of the Corbynites, you know, like Matt Zarb cousin wrote a piece yesterday, I think, and the, mm, the, I the, the real position of, of of most Corbynites is neither pro nor anti. It's they just don't really care. That was basically what he was saying. It's like I don't care. I want Labour in for the following reasons. And he, he wouldn't come out and say it, but that was kind of the underlying message. There is that, but there's there is also a strand in Labour thinking which um, is kind of uh, partly a Corbynite strain, and because he is um, not a Remainer, which is that after Brexit things will get really bad, and we know what happens when people things get uh, really bad. Governments Fascism. get thrown out. Yeah. <laughs> well, governments get thrown out. Other governments get voted in, and in that sense, Brexit is an opportunity. Uh, the worse Brexit goes, let's face it, the easier it will be for Labour to win the next election. And that is why they are staying quiet. And also, you know, uh, it, it, gives the, it gives the government more leeway and more power to do what it wants, if it Labour, what they want, if they get into power. So that is the other thing that's uh, preoccupying. Well, as Homer Simpson said, the, the Chinese have the same word for crisis as opportunity, crisitunity. Yeah. <laughs> and this is... <laughs> This is Labour's Christ-a-tunity. Disaster socialism is another way of putting it, yeah. And finally, Jake Staines asks, why is your theme tune that awful aggressive strings thing and not Ode to Joy? It's not its official title, that awful aggressive strings thing. Uh, now, Ode to Joy is a bit of a cliche, but it's funny you should bring that up. We may well have some interesting news on the music front very soon. And on that cryptic note, we're coming to the end of the show. Thanks to Ros Taylor for returning to Romaniacs. Please come back soon. Third time's a charm. Where can listeners read the LSE Brexit blogs? Well, the simplest thing would be to just Google LSE Brexit blog. But if you want the full <laughs> URL... On a, on a computer? On a computer, or, or use okay. another search engine Google. if you prefer com. it. Use another search engine okay. if you don't approve of Google. Yeah. Um, and we'll be posting um, a link to that, so that fascinating feature about regional variation on our Facebook page. Great. Uh, thanks to our co-hosts, Peter Collins and Ian Dunt. Remember, you can hear more Romaniacs and find all our social media connections at romaniacs.com. We'll be back next week doing our best to ensure that British sovereignty stays where it belongs, in Brussels. Until then, we're going to finish with a reason to be cheerful. And it's Ros's turn. What have you got for us? Well, I've got two this week. I'll just make them brief, though. Number one, the fact that Theresa May is in Switzerland. Now, I would normally have said this uh, a year or so ago, but let's face it, Switzerland has a reasonably good deal. It, has, uh, it is in the single market, but it is not in the EEA. Now, it all gets very complicated about what we choose to join, but it may be that she is, while she is in Switzerland, she thinks, yes, this is a model that we could follow. I might not have to have such a hard Brexit after all. It has freedom of movement as well, by the way. Um, the other thing is uh, Boris Johnson. Now, I don't want to sound like you know, I'm obsessed with Boris, but Boris, it was reported this week, and it was reported falsely, according to Boris himself, was thinking about resigning as Foreign Secretary. That's what Vince Cable said. Uh, Boris said that was rubbish. But I reckon Boris is wavering. Boris is in a very interesting position right now, and I think he has a lot of power, potentially, to change people's minds. If, and if he, it was a big if, if he decided that it was time to come up and make a speech, he could start, if it was really a tasteless, he could start it, I had a dream about Brexit and how great it was going to be, if it was really tasteless. And he could, he could make an enormous uh, splash show, uh, saying that he had thought about it and, you know, those, those Johnny Foreigners were making it so difficult for us. Frankly, it was going to be easy to stay. And one thing Boris never likes to do is flog a dead horse. I say leave a dead horse where it is, so on and so forth. And he might actually change minds. I reckon that uh, there's a possibility, one in ten, that he might be thinking about doing that. But that is a hunch. 
Boris Johnson being tasteless. I can't imagine that at all. We we know he has, you know. (laughs) It was amazing, wasn't it, how quickly his office came out with that he's not resigning, he's not resigning thing. You just thought, wow, that actually spooked you. And that did make me happy. (laughs) Just to think, really, that he had panicked moments of sweaty-induced nightmares in bed late at night. Mm, I hope he's suffering. (laughs) (laughs) And that's us done. We'll see you next week. Until then, it's the turn of Italy. Non lasciate che i bastardi vi macinino giù. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Peter Collins, Ross Taylor and Ian Dunt. The programme editor was me, Andrew Harrison, and production was by Elliot Prince. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. <laughs>